industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, January 12th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by the one and only Asit Sharma as we take a look at Poshmark's S1 filing. So it's an upcoming IPO. We're going to be digging into its financials and discussing whether or not we're interested in this recent IPO. Um, Asit, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me, Emily. And I have to ask before we start, does this mean that we have to put on posh British, British accents for the whole recording today, or we could just use our normal accents since we're talking about Poshmark? If I wasn't going to horribly embarrass myself with my inability to do any sort of accent, I would definitely say we should we should fake the accent for this episode. But uh, to spare myself and the listeners, maybe not. Next time. <laughs> Next time, exactly. I'll, I'll work on it and I'll get back to you. Uh, Poshmark's really interesting. It's an online fashion marketplace. They're looking to go public tomorrow, January 13th. So it's going to be a very quick debut after this coverage. So I hope everybody's listening when we release this on the 12th. But Poshmark is a social media driven secondhand marketplace for clothing and beauty items. Um, It's going to be hard to visualize exactly what this platform looks like if you aren't a user of Poshmark, but you can imagine it as something like a combination of Instagram, Etsy, and eBay, all mashed into one. Uh, This is uh, replicating success that we've seen with other businesses playing in that niche between social media and e-commerce. The end result is hopefully what they believe to be a marketplace that has the engagement of even the best social media companies with also a highly integrated shopping experience that can be reminiscent of e-commerce businesses like Pinterest. Yeah, just a quick comment here. Emily, I think they've been around since 2011 or 2012. So they sort of evolved this way. They didn't spring up last year in an effort to take the best parts of each of these platforms and have this uh, world-beating mashup. But I think it is interesting um, that they do pull from the various um, advantages of different marketplace platforms we've seen So I think, in my opinion, after reading through this S1, the thesis for Poshmark really just boils down to whether or not you believe shopping is going to be more social in the future than it is today. It really reminds me of a Chinese company, actually, that I'm invested in. It's called Penduoduo. The ticker is PDD. And it's a very risky business, even riskier given today's climate. But it's interesting how the two businesses intersect. Penduoduo made its, uh, you know, became such a powerhouse in China because it combined social media with discount shopping, giving people the opportunity to group up with buyers and buy things at a really steep discount. Now, that is not what Poshmark is doing. As I mentioned before, the majority of products sold on Poshmark's platform are resold goods. So people going through their closets, finding old clothes that they maybe didn't want to, you know, they don't wear anymore that they want to sell. So it's different. But the thesis for Pinduoduo and theoretically Poshmark, I think, is the same. Uh, the idea is that you can get a really engaged and sticky audience by combining a lot of the uh, really kind of thrilling experiences of social media with also an integrated purchasing experience. So people will sign up for Poshmark's platform and feel the need to come back and visit 
daily uh, simply because of the social media aspect. I, I mentioned this before we started taping Osset, but I was not a user of Poshmark before coming into this S1. I am now a user of Poshmark. I set up an account and going through that process is really interesting because unlike platforms like Etsy, for which you can just hop on and make a one-off purchase, you have to set up a profile on Poshmark. Uh, you have to put in not only your, your email address, obviously your name, but your age, your sizes, your favorite brands. That's mandatory information before you can even get onto the Poshmark platform. Meaning for all the users that Poshmark has, they also have a lot of really valuable information about the sizing and the preferences of their customers. So now when I get onto Poshmark's either app or website, the only clothes I see are clothes that are from brands I like, uh, from sellers that I follow that are my size. And I can't say that I've experienced that anywhere else. I think it's a masterstroke, actually, Emily. I know in their S1, they talk a lot about their data-driven algorithmic approach to uh, matching people up with content clothes that they're going to want to buy. And I, I think they do do that. It reminds me of Stitch Fix a little bit. But maybe the big front of the work is done up front, taking all this information, they sort of get a lock on you, um, you know, from the very first. I was curious, did they ask you to also put in a profile picture? Did they require that step? You know, I, I think I, I think they did. And I think I had it signed up with my either my Facebook or my Google account. Oh, no, now you can find me. Um, <laughs> And I think it automatically <laughs> right. took the photo uh, from that. But when I was parsing through the profile pages, um, not everybody has a photo that's maybe representative of who they are as a customer. That's one thing that I, I did notice on their platform. But most people, I'd say, have a profile photo. Yeah. And this is so interesting to me because so I'm not on a lot of social media platforms. I am on Twitter. So I'm familiar with the concept of followers. Emily, you can accumulate followers on this platform, right? I guess, you know, if I, if I get on, then I will follow you. And, and when I see you've bought a pair of jeans, I'll say, oh, well, because, you know, I buy different jeans than you do. But <laughs> yes, that's actually one of the most interesting aspects uh, of this kind of e-commerce experiences. And, and granted, but platforms like Pinterest do a similar thing, uh, although admittedly not as integrated into the e-commerce experience, where you can actually follow sellers that you like. Um, this has led to a lot of sellers coming onto the platform and not necessarily being a one-off shirt sale, but people making, say, handmade goods or purposely reselling goods as a career choice right on the platform. The average seller on Poshmark has just under 300 followers, so a pretty sizable amount. I believe they said in their S1 file, the largest seller on their platform had more than 2 million followers. To give you an idea about the, the range of experiences you can have as a seller. Interesting. That's going to be my goal when I get on is not necessarily to buy or selling. <laughs> 2 million? Grab a lot of followers. <laughs> <laughs> and when you look at this business, I, I think one of the numbers that stood out to me the most was actually their engagement scores. And they purposely provided it an interesting metric that I haven't seen with other resellers. And uh, it's essentially trying to encompass both the power of the engagement and the purchasing power of the Poshmark platform. Uh, say that 10 times fast. But essentially, one of the numbers that they provided in 2019 was that 87% of all the items purchased were preceded by a social engagement. So that's something like a like comment or an offer on their marketplace. So the people who are making purchasing decisions are engaging with the sellers 
before making that that purchase. And that's not something that we see with other e-commerce platforms. That's much more reminiscent of a social media platform. So I like to see that level of engagement. Uh, one of the things that I, I was sad wasn't explicitly broken out was the retention rates of their users and their sellers. I feel like that 87% number in combination with a really high retention rate, especially when you look at the changes in average order volume over time, could have painted a really compelling story. We didn't quite get there, but that 87% number really shows the level of engagement that people are spending on their platform. Um, and those active users, right? The people making these purchases spend an average of 27 minutes every single day on the Poshmark platform. So it's easy to see how something like a like, a follow, or a comment can end up being a purchasing decision when the majority of their users are spending on average 30 minutes a day on their platform. Yeah, you know, it's such a strong consumer insight because anyone who's been on a social media platform knows this instinctively. Whether you're one of these people who is, is trying to gain a big following or just interested in following people who you want to learn from or, or perhaps emulate, it's a draw back to the platform. So for those of you who are listening, who are on Twitter or Facebook or any of these platforms, there, there is a draw every day to pick up your mobile phone and just check in. What, what is new on the platform? Maybe you have some new followers. The insight, uh, which you, know, you mentioned, Pinduoduo had this a, a while ago to really make that into an experience that leads to a sale, that converts to a sale, to me was really persuasive in this business model, simply because I know, hey, you know, I check my Twitter a few times a day. I'm, I'm not quite as addictive as some people I know, but at least twice a day, I'll check in to see maybe if there's a mention or something interesting. So um, over the long term, I, you know, I agree with you, Emily, it would have been nice to have seen some of these um, retention figures so we could sort of project out over the long term what the, the true impact could be. But we'll talk a little bit more about uh, retention as we go along. Yeah, so let's get into some of the numbers here for Poshmark because now that we've covered the business basics, I think the natural question is, well, okay, that's great. How do they make money? And I, I think some people can probably make an assumption about how they make their revenue, which is a safe assumption. That's just the the e-commerce take rate. So the same way that sites like Etsy, other e-commerce sites, take a percentage of any sales operate on their platform, that's the same thing that Poshmark does. So despite the emphasis that they have on social media, ultimately they want all of their engagements to lead to some sort of sale because that's how they make their revenue. And their take rate which is their, their transaction fee, it's 20% of the final price of the sale if the sale is over $15. If the sale is under $15, it's a flat rate of, of $2.95. That's really, really high. I'm not sure if that struck you as as high as it struck yes. me, Asit. But when you're talking about um, someone making a career, I mean, 20% is, is pretty hefty. It's a steep take rate, and it's one of the higher take rates you'll see across uh, e-commerce platforms. The idea that if the sale is under fifteen dollars, well, let's just say you have a sale at fourteen ninety nine, three dollars or almost three dollars is what that's approaching thirty percent. And you can see if you're selling something for three bucks or five bucks, I mean, there's you, you can do the math. That that's a really really high uh, take rate the company is is doing. So over the grand um, course of a year, I think when you look at total gross merchandise value, most of these sales are going to have to be over $15, $20, and they're probably higher price points simply because this is a, a 
trending a little bit towards the fashionista side of the spectrum. So, so we can expect to see more premium price points so a seller can make money. But again, it's resale. So this is merchandise that you may have paid, I'll just pick a round number, maybe $100 for um, a nice blouse. And then you're trying to monetize that as a seller while making it enticing enough that you'll be able to convert the sale. So there is sort of a magic formula in there that I, I think they've arrived at with a lot of data that if we you know, avoid some critical parts of a marketplace business, if we don't hold inventory, it can work for us and the seller. So it can work for Poshmark and the seller. And that was one of the things that you had noted, I think, Emily, going through here that the company has really nice margins, which we'll get to. And that's part of the reason is because it's, it's going from buyer to seller. So you are selling me an item. They never have to mess with the inventory. So, But I was surprised. I, I was surprised at that. Um, obviously, the growth in gross merchandise volume and the growth in users uh, supports that. People are willing to uh, give over that 20% uh, because most of the items, again, that they're selling are going to be a little bit more of a premium price point. That's a really nice segue into one of the other really important metrics that are that Poshmark provides in their S1. And it also answers a lot of the questions that we're getting as we tape here this podcast live in front of our Motley Fool live audience. A lot of people asking about how this company compares to another e-commerce reseller called The Real Real. And this metric will answer that question. It's the average order value. So you mentioned that part of the reason why their take rate is so high is that they take a percentage of their average order. And now, depending on how large the average order is, obviously dictates how large of a take rate that they have at that 20%. Part of the reason why they have to keep it high is that their average order value is actually pretty low for an e-commerce retailer. It's $33 in 2019 in average order value. So the average person going onto Poshmark, the average buyer, is spending around $33 in order. That's considerably lower than competitors, especially businesses like The Real Real or Farfetch, which are in the hundreds of dollars, mostly focused on the resale of designer or luxury brands. The average brand that you'll find on Poshmark is something like Forever 21 or H&M. Uh, these are the brands that I, I noted when I signed up that I liked, and uh, they'll send you emails where you get recommendations. But the point is, I, I'm not paying full price or even a high price for a resold good from a lower end retailer. Now you could argue that there's power in their brands. It enables the average person to become a seller on Poshmark. The average person who maybe isn't into brands, right? Doesn't spend a lot of money on luxury goods, who's just looking to clean out their closet. But I could also see an argument in the opposite direction, which is that they have to charge a really high and expensive rate because this goods that are sold on their platform are relatively cheap. And that can also lead to some poor experiences for members. So I think that's one thing that kind of differentiates Poshmark from other resellers is that that, av that low average order value. And I didn't see, I'm not sure if you saw Asset, but I didn't see any year-over-year -year numbers for how that's trended over time. So I can't say how that $33 has changed from 2019 to 2020 or previously. Yeah, I didn't see. And in fact, I missed that price point in the S1, which is surprising to me because that clearly is that um, this is a volume-dependent platform, which, you know, they've got the volume, so it's working for them. But I am surprised at that uh, price point, that it's only 33 bucks. This, you know, instantly sort of says something very nice about the platform, but introduces some risk, right? Because we know that this type of platform business, you know, the trend in creating 
marketplace platforms is combining with another really powerful trend, which is just the resale market in general. So I, you know, I feel like there's going to be much competition in this space at all all levels of of uh, merchandise. So really expensive stuff. We've got the the higher end uh, retailers, retail platforms. I think Farfetch is maybe an example of that. And then you've got some that uh, really are just looking for people to, to draw people who want to get rid of stuff. I think ThreadUp is maybe an example of that. So maybe this is somewhere in between in the, the lower third. But all in all, we'll get to numbers in a bit, actual financials, that I think it, it says something positive that they've been able to attract this user base and uh, grow it at that, that level. Surprising. And before we move on to um, digging into more of their financial metrics here, uh, a couple of the other important numbers that we haven't yet mentioned that will give investors and listeners an idea about the scale or the size of Poshmark's business. That's their active users and that growth, as well as the active sellers. Um, so Poshmark has just under 32 million active users as of September 30th, and around 20% of those, or around 6 million, are active buyers. So right now, I would be considered an active user of Poshmark. I have signed up. I have created a profile. I have browsed some sellers. I've engaged a little bit with some uh, social media aspects of the platform, but I have not yet placed an order. So I'm part of that 32 million active users. Anybody who has placed an order would be considered an active buyer. And then there's also active sellers. Um, As of that September 30th date, Poshmark has around 4.5 million active sellers. Now, those numbers may sound big, right? 32 million users, 6 million buyers, 5 million sellers. But let's throw out Pinterest. I keep using Pinterest as an example, but it is a good example of what Poshmark maybe could become in the future. It's really only a fraction of Pinterest users. Pinterest has over 440 million users uh, to give you an idea about scale here. So Poshmark, the reason why many of us probably haven't heard of it is because it is still very, very small, which will kind of lead us into some of the, the talk over revenue and finances here. Sure. You know, small is good in some ways because that's your potential to grab market share from the bigger players. Um, so, Emily, I wanted to mention one more statistic. So, you mentioned uh, the gross merchandise volume. I think the past 12 months was around $375 million. They've cumulatively done about $4 billion of total gross merchandise volume. And I bring that up only to say that many platforms you will look at are doing in the billions of gross merchandise volume in a year. So that maybe speaks a little bit to the potential that in all these years, it's only accumulated $4 billion. Again, that, that also, I mean, yes, it's a big number, but relative to the size that some marketplace businesses grow. I think that maybe speaks to potential, but again, I'll also have to leave in that with what I think is going to be intensifying competition. Are they really going to get to an appreciable size? And when you say $4 billion in cumulative uh, merchandise value, just over the past 12 months, so if you look over the previous 12 months, which are actually really good for Poshmark despite the pandemic, which we'll get to that. Uh, but if you look over the past 12 months, they did under $400 million in gross merchandise value. So to your point, that's not a ton. This is a very, very small platform. Uh, another thing that I think is interesting, uh, maybe an opportunity, maybe a risk, is looking at the users. As you may expect, 83% of active users are female and 80% are millennials. So they have a clear target demographic here. And again, I apologize, but I can't help but compare it to Pinterest. And Pinterest's S1, when they went public last year, they noted 
in contrast to, to their numbers that 80% of all women in the United States aged 18 to 64 with children were Pinterest users. And 43% of all internet users in the US were Pinterest users. Those amazing rates of penetration in the United States. And Pinterest is still maybe perceived as a, a skeptical play on, on social media and e-commerce. I tend to like it, but there are a lot of investors who don't feel the same. So all of that is to say Poshmark is going after the same audience as Pinterest, but has been a lot less successful in actually penetrating that audience over the same time frame that Pinterest has. Pinterest has a way of proving people wrong. Emily, I avoided buying it for so many reasons that are just embedded in what you just said, but it is a very strong business. And I still, I still think, aren't those numbers fake from that S1? 43% of everyone who's using the internet in the United States is a Pinterest user. That's Isn't phenomenal. Isn't that crazy? So it's crazy. It's crazy. I'm gonna, one day I'm going to have to do some research and see if I can challenge that, but I I'm, will probably prove myself wrong. It's, that's, and that's, that's Pinterest for you. Another really, really interesting company worthy of investors' attention. And when you look at the engagement that they're getting from their admittedly smaller audience from Pinterest, it can lead you to uh, some of the, I guess, the conclusions you can draw from their financial performance. One of the big levers that Poshmark is looking to pull to continue to grow revenue with their smaller audience pools, obviously pulling in new customers, but also just deepening the engagement with their sellers and their buyers. They've really focused on uh, having their buyers also be sellers on the platform and ensuring that their sellers are also buying on the platform. So if you look at some of the numbers that they provided in their S1, some really interesting statistics here, they provided the cumulative percentage of buyers that are also sellers from the first year of the buyer's purchase to year five. And that number rises from 41%. So 41% of buyers are sellers in their first year to 52% by year five. And then you can look at the inverse. So that's the cumulative percent of sellers that are going to be buyers on the platform. That rises from 31% of the seller's first year by to 44% of sellers are also buyers by year five. Those numbers, I think, uh, are moving in the right direction, but also oper offer the opportunity for improvement in the future. They're high enough to show a trend, but also low enough to still show growth. Sure. And, and the more they can push these numbers, the better as, as they scale up. That just makes all of their marketing efforts, uh, all of their selling efforts in terms of selling tools uh, to buyers and sellers, just more efficient if it's the same person that's receiving the messages rather than adding new uh, people to the pool, which of course they want to do. You, you have to keep, keep growing your platform. But this has a way of showing up in the profit and loss statement over time, you know, in the form of just increased operating margins. So it is a positive trend. You know, again, I just go back to the lack of comparable metrics. This is an instance um, that, uh, you know, we see a few years worth of, of metrics and a, and a trend. And I think, Emily, maybe it's the power of suggestion. Maybe because when we were prepping for this episode, you were complaining about some metrics <laughs> not having year-over-year -year comparisons. And I think I got into that mode. Um, why don't we have uh, better retention metrics from this company? They do have a couple of graphs that indicate that their uh, retention of customers on a dollar basis is growing, but they don't give any kind of indication of what customer churn is like. So with people leaving the platform, how sticky it really is. Uh, one of the metrics that they provide 
that I love to see in S1 are, are their cohort performances. Um, this is similar to what we saw with Chewy's S1, that Poshmark breaks down the people they brought in from their different cohorts, spanning back from 2012 all the way to 2019, and tracking how much they spend over time. But to your point, unlike Chewy, Poshmark does not tell me how many of those, those users they actually retained, which worries me a little bit because it makes me wonder about what their customer acquisition cost ends up being long-term. Uh, you really only make good on your customer acquisition cost if you're able to retain those customers. It seems like from their gross merchandise value by cohort that they provided, that they are increasing uh, the customers that they retain year over year. So the average person who came in and I think it was 2012 to 2015 was spending an average of $170 in gross merchandise value on their platform a year. That's risen to 231 in 2019. So that number is expanding and it's expanding for all of the cohorts that they provided over time. But unless I know how much money you spent to acquire that customer and unless I know what your retention was like for all those customers, it really makes that gross merchandise value by cohort metric kind of useless. So I don't mean to nitpick over having that missing retention number, but I'm shocked for a company that does depend so highly on engagement and retention that they didn't provide more detail analysis there. Yeah, and, and they're preceded to market by a string of companies that did provide this these kinds of metrics. And, um, and not to hold them to any kind of high standard, but just a standard of comparability because they're going to enter a space where there are some really interesting choices. We've mentioned Farfetch on the high end. Um, I think RealReal is is in there. The Revolve Group, which you and I have talked about, all of these are platforms where you can get those metrics. Um, and if you're making an investing decision, you want to compare like to like. So may, perhaps they'll provide this, say, in conference calls in the future after they report their first quarterly earnings. That's something that we can look for. And and. While we finish off here and kind of we'll get into the risks of this business, obviously there's there's some risks that we haven't quite got into yet. One of the good things that, that came out of this S1 is their financial performance. Um, this is a business that has gross margins in the the upper 80s, so 83% over the, the previous 12 months. Again, since I've been comparing to Pinterest, I realize this is not apples to apples. Obviously, Pinterest is less focused on e-commerce than Poshmark is right now. But since I've been comparing to Pinterest to this point, it is worth noting that that is better than Pinterest's 75% gross margins. So this is a very high margin platform. Uh, as you alluded to, Asset, they do not hold the inventory, which allows them to have those really high margins. They've also been spending less on sales and marketing over time. That's trended downwards. It was 68% over the previous 12 months, a SG&A margin. And they're also growing revenue. Admittedly, not as fast as their competitors. Their revenue over the previous 12 months was up 20%. Not bad, but also not anything to write home about and nothing that I'd pay a Pinterest level premium for. <laughs> True. Uh, it is nice to see operating margin. It's nice to see them uh, turn a profit. One of the things that they've got to scale as they grow revenue is, is to scale that sort of fixed cost base. And part of that um, is the, the spends that they lay, lay out for uh, selling and marketing. That is showing progress, but at the same time, uh, I think that there is, you know, one thing you and I discussed earlier is looking at what's going to happen in a post-COVID world. So they received a boost over the past couple of quarters after a really rocky first quarter, second and third quarters. They really saw some boost out of that marketing spend. In other words, they got more 
sales per marketing dollar than they were getting before on a year-over-year basis and on a sequential basis up until the third quarter where they fell off just a bit. So that's a sign that hmm, some of this will, some of this operating leverage is going to stick around, but how much? And that's why it's you know it's interesting to see exactly where they'll land in the next couple of quarters. I do like though that they are already turning a profit. COVID booster, no. It's good to see them hit that because it shows that in some case or in some business case scenario, um, as they grow sales, even at a slower clip, 20%, 30%, 15%, there's an equation where they can work the sales and marketing spend, which is their biggest line item outside of uh, you know their, their cost of sales, to consistently turn out hopefully positive operating cash flow along with some gap profits. So yeah, we should get we should assign them a plus for that for sure, but jury's still out. We're going to need some more quarters to see exactly what this business model looks like uh, after everyone is vaccinated and and uh, looking at where else they can spend their consumer dollars. If I can if I can be a, a little bit of a negative Nancy here for that plus, I have a little bit of a minus to go alongside it. Some really good points there about their financial performance. I do think that a lot of this is probably a result of COVID. As you mentioned, management was pretty upfront that their marketing dollars went way further this past couple of quarters and they did previously. This was not a business that was profitable pre-pandemic. They shot up to sudden profitability on a net profit profit basis in the second quarter of 2020. They made $21 million and then that got cut in half to just over $10 million by the third quarter of 2020. I would not be surprised to see this company go back into the negatives here in terms of, of net loss simply because of the marketing spend. And part of the reason why I'm a little bit worried about that marketing spend is because when you look at revenue growth, that 20%, you can compare it to the growth in active users. They had 42% growth in active users over the same time period that they had that 20% revenue growth. Now, that could be fine if those active users are going to retain and spend more money in the future, but I don't have any of those retention numbers. So how am I as an investor supposed to make any assumptions about how sticky that 42% growth in active users ends up being in terms of actual revenue for this company when they don't provide retention numbers and they're growing revenue at less than half the rate that they're acquiring customers. Um, I apologize. I'm coming across awfully negative here. I, I don't mean that to sour any anybody's opinions, but it is just to say that I coming out of this S1, I felt like I still didn't have a complete picture of what to expect in terms of business performance over the next at least year, simply because I was missing those those critical ratios. Well, you know, it's interesting. We uh, were chatting just before this uh, podcast on our Motley Fool Live, because we're, we're taping live on Motley Fool Live with Tim Byers about Stitch Fix. Now, Stitch Fix is a company that's moved towards sort of level two of business. And what is that? It's moving from only looking at your customer acquisition costs to figuring out, hey, what's the lifetime value of this customer? And let's focus on increasing that lifetime value. If you've got a lot of customer churn, then you're still sort of at step one in this kind of business. And you know, if you read the tea leaves, Poshmark doesn't have the jet engines yet to scale reliably where you can conclusively say that they're growing because they're adding new members to the platform, customers are spending more, they're sticking around, and now we can extrapolate out of this, wow, you know, a customer will be worth X dollars in five years and 10 years. And why is that? It may be because there's some churn here that they are very good at attracting new 
new users. That pushes up that total gross merchandise volume, but there's something going on underneath the hood that's still not visible to investors. And where we'll see it, Emily, is exactly where you're pointing. You know, one, two, three, four quarters out, it, you can't hide. It's going to show up in the numbers. In lower uh, profits, um, maybe you know, in one quarter, you could see sort of a slide back into a loss. That's not unusual for these types of platforms. Their earnings can be variable. And before we wrap up here with our risks, um, I, I, I kind of want to touch on management really briefly. I'm not sure if you did very much digging into this management team, Asset. I, I tried a little bit, and I really wasn't able to make much headway. What I did find is that there, this is a business that's going to be controlled through a dual-class share structure and run by four co-founders. Uh, there's a CEO, Manish Chandra, and I, I apologize, I'm going to butcher everybody's name. Um, that was perfect. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, now it's about <laughs> to get bad. Um, co-founder and CTO, Guatam Gowala, co-founder and VP of Engineering, Chetan Pungalaria, uh, and then co-founder and VP of Merchandising, Tracy Sun. Uh, these four co-founders don't have a, a very robust history behind them. Uh, what they did prior to founding and obviously running Poshmark is actually founding and running a company called Caboodle. Um, and Caboodle was a local community networking platform, uh, still seems to be up and running today. It's uh, interesting. I feel like they're great at naming things. I mean, Caboodle, uh, Poshmark before becoming Poshmark was known as Gosh Posh. Uh, so these are people <laughs> that are clearly skilled in naming businesses, but but I don't can't testify much to their success in running a company, other than the fact that they have been with the business, running it, obviously founding it for the past decade, which I think says a lot about the team's long-term focus. And more importantly, they're going to be the controllers of the majority of the voting rights of this company once Poshmark is public. So I, I look forward to getting more information about them in the future, but I didn't see anything that struck me as an immediate red flag. Yeah, me neither. And the fact that they uh, have control of the voting stock also implies that they have among them a sizable amount of stock and interest in the company. So you can just look at that as an incentive to sort of grow the company. It's something you want to see. And, and you know, folk, four co-founders is a nice number of people to have. You see them fall off after a while. And uh, the positions they're holding, pretty nice. So, one of the co-founders, Gautam Golwala, is now the CTO. Uh, Chetan Pungali, I think I'm mangling these two, Emily, is <laughs> VP of Engineering. Tracy Sun, VP of Merchandising. So they are over the, the really broad parts of the business, so they can be the architects of how it grows. I like that. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see them that positive. <laughs> And as we wrap up here, I want to finish off with the question about if you're interested in this company, and if not, what would make you more interested? But before I do that, I want to talk about some of the risks. There are always risks in companies, right? We, it's impossible for us to do an S1 dive and not talk about uh, the junior risks that are investors when you invest in any sort of equity. Uh, there's entire sections laid out in uh, SEC filings just to the risks. But if you had to nail down maybe just one or two things that you consider key risks for this business, what would they be? So the, the first would be one that you've already mentioned, which is that after this period of uh, COVID-19 passes, if there is indeed some churn underneath the hood, how will this company be able to keep those sales above the level where the marketing dollars aren't trying so hard to grab new customers? That's their biggest challenge uh, after we get through 
we were saying in 2020, after we get through 2020, but let's say after we get through the first half of 21, hopefully things look better in the overall economy. Um, but I also think, for me, it's it's a little bit of the intensifying competition in this space. Marketplace businesses had a lull, Emily. You know, for a while, we just saw um, eBay, Mercado Libre, and on the payment side, uh, companies like PayPal. It seemed like there was a long time where those were growing. They had some growing pains. As technology has improved, as Amazon Web Services and, and Microsoft Azure have made it easier and easier with a host of tools for people to start these businesses with very little capital, there is a lot of intensifying competition in the space of platform businesses. There are many new entrants. I mean, this IPO is just one example. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a bit. But to me, it's how do you keep your advantage without any real uh, competitive moat? I the, the one thing I did like is the merging of social with the buying experience, but that's not something that's unassailable. I think that wouldn't be too hard for other companies to to replicate. So, you know, for me, those are the really the the the, the biggest risks. I'm I'm worried about not an infinite amount of capital chasing other new ideas in this space as they come along and go public. What and what about you? What what do you see as your, your the biggest things you worry about? Uh, in addition to to what you noted, which I think are, are really great legitimate risks, I think the one thing we haven't mentioned that I would consider is uh, competition. There is a fair amount of competition in online resale. Uh, that shouldn't surprise people. I mean, we've talked about a lot of these businesses in the past, and I, I will happily admit that I don't think any of these competitors have integrated the social experience at, in such a compelling and exciting way the way that Poshmark has. I think they've done an amazing job of operating in that integration between social networking and, and e-commerce. Where my concern is, is the fee structure. I, I have to wonder if that $33 is a result of the high fees that they charge on the platform and ask myself if I was going to sell my clothes, uh, where would I choose to do it? And I can see the appeal of having a captive audience that is really engaged and really likely to buy over Poshmark. But at the same time, if I'm selling something, let's say I'm selling a, a shirt, you, you mentioned a $100 shirt, I think is a good example. If I'm selling a $100 shirt, uh, $20 of that is going to go to Poshmark. That really starts to cut into the amount of money that I would make as a seller on the platform. So I have to wonder a little bit about if they would ever be able to increase that average order value. It concerns me that they didn't give me the year-over-year change or any long-term change in that average order value. That makes me wonder if it hasn't really moved historically and if we can't expect for it to move in the future simply because of their high fee structure. So that's my my minor concern. In addition, and that kind of backed up by the fact that I've I've seen sellers since browsing on the marketplace, many products listed around the $3 mark. And with the $2.95 fee that Poshmark charges, I think a large number of these sellers are probably um, A, trying to get traction, social media traction by selling products, a large quantity of products at potentially a loss for themselves or a net neutral for themselves when you consider the fee uh, for the purpose of building up followers. And I think that sort of, of churn can also keep the average order value relatively low. Uh, granted, their take rates, again, that's their take rates are high. The $2.95 fee on a $3 order is a pretty strong value add for Poshmark. But is that sustainable over the long term? Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I usually wait a quarter or two for an IPO to, to seed, to just get its its sea legs. Uh, there is a phenomenon 
more, I think, in, in the past than, than I've seen recently in a hot IPO market. But th there's definitely been a trend of window dressing in the IPO market. That means that companies are trying to put their best foot forward and dress up their financials and results. Um, and when they go public, either they're going to perform or they're going to sort of revert back to their normal state. So I always think it's uh, easy, actually, to wait a couple of quarters. I, I very rarely suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out. In this case, it's I think it's really advised to do that just simply because of the point we've talking we've been talking about that uh, this company has a period where it's going to need to pull itself away from the ramped up COVID purchasing, and then we'll get a, a truer sense of what the financials look like. So I'll be waiting probably for that reason alone. I'm definitely going to follow it. I do like the capital light model. Uh, as, as some listeners will know, I am a fan of Revolve. We talked about it on Industry Focus. That's another profitable company that I think has some real potential. But you know, they've got inventory, as I mentioned earlier. This company doesn't. So it has the potential to have, I think, some steady earnings, growing earnings, if these other questions are resolved. I love the intersection of these two big trends. I'm a fan of marketplace businesses. I like the growing trend of apparel resale. But to your point, Emily, there's ThreadUp, there's TradeSea, there's Vinted, Mercari, the real real. Now, all these aren't publicly traded companies. Even Levi's has opened up a resale platform for its jeans. All of these companies I've just, just mentioned are hitting different niches in this space. So I don't mean to imply that they are all coming at Poshmark. Each has a different take on the price points and, and the merchandise that they have going over their platform. But you're right. I mean, this is not sort of a, a home run idea. It's going to be one that's going to prove itself over time, you know, if it does, by the strength of its this social business model. And hopefully, it'll be able to keep a step ahead of other platforms that want to adopt that. Um, thirdly, I'm really curious to see how the market's going to value Poshmark in relation to other fashion sites that are publicly traded and marketplace businesses in general. We've seen a lot of marketplace businesses get a premium in the marketplace. I'm a shareholder of of Etsy, I think you are too, and they, they've had a really great run. But these types of businesses, clothing platforms, they've got a history of actually stumbling fresh out of the gate, going down for several quarters versus the broader market. Farfetch, which has had a really great last 12 months, had this experience. The Real Real had this experience as well, and so did Revolve Group. So, you know, I, I'm just curious. There is a lot of froth in the market now, and people are chasing what they perceive as hot IPOs. I'm not so sure that that this is one that um, capital is going to pick up and and run with. So we will have to watch there. And then I guess finally, I would say for me, um, this sort of trend of marketplace businesses just steadily growing GMV, the better ones, which is such a reliable way to to increase your returns on your invested capital. If, if you've got this really big built-in vehicle that's all the money being transacted over your platform and it's growing at a steady clip over a year all you've got to do is you know take your slice the, the take rate that's very very attractive to me and that's why this company will stay on my watch list it's not one that after reading through um, the s1 and especially after hearing your insights today that I'm, I'm just I can't wait to go out and buy but I don't want to knock it too much I have been proven wrong I was very skeptical about farfetch. And that has, you know, proven me wrong. So I'm going to follow it. Now, Emily, what are your thoughts? It sounds like um, 
Well, let me not anticipate this. I have an opinion of what you're going to say, an idea, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm starting to wonder if, if we're, we're too bad kind, kind of co-hosts here for industry focus, because I think our takes are very similar. I was slow to the gun for businesses like Farfetch. I was slow to the gun for Pinterest, and I've been proven wrong on both of those businesses. And I've obviously since changed my tune, but I typically don't get around to doing so until businesses have started to prove themselves out a little bit. And I think for the most part, that means that I'm maybe a risk adverse investor. I, I give up some of the early gains, but I get in there eventually as I have with Farfetch and Pinterest. I think the same could be true for Poshmark. Um, I, I could see a year from now circling around this business and having it uh, be wildly successful, especially considering its relative small size in relationship to its market opportunity, which uh, one thing we didn't note that I'll briefly cite as, as one of the reasons I'm a little bit nervous is that they cite their $90 billion market opportunity as online e-commerce instead of online resale, which is a much smaller portion of that market. So I, I do have questions about how they perceive to be their position in online commerce. I think I, I put a pin in this for now. I want a few quarters to see how uh, the business results end up being in a post-COVID world, if this is a business that turns back to being unprofitable as a result of increased marketing spend. And I want to see how their cohorts retain and spend years into the future. And I, I, I really could be wrong here. I can see myself kicking myself a year or two from now for, for not giving Poshmark a better due when it first went public. But this is a business for me that I'm putting on, on kind of the back burner for the time being. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, again, I, I, I tend to be wrong. I tend to be slow um, to exciting and disruptive businesses. So I, I could very, very well be wrong and slow here. But either way, Asit, I appreciate you always taking your time to provide your really valuable insights and your opinion, which sometimes is too in line with mine <laughs> on well, exciting businesses like this. We'll soon find a, a topic that we can really just wrestle with. So we'll, we'll go after it. <laughs> It'll be challenging, but I look forward to it. Same. Well, Asit, thanks again for coming on. And uh, for listeners, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.